What's up? It's Kaylee Cuoco. When it comes to travel, we all have a happy place. I just went to my happy place. I just went to Maui, and it was truly amazing. Priceline has always been about getting you to your happy place for a happy price with deals you really can't find anywhere else, like up to 60% off select hotels in Costa Rica or five-star hotels for two-star prices in Cabo. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey everyone, welcome to The Final Four is Not on the Schedule. I'm your host Eric, alongside with expert analyst Rod. Thanks for joining us on the best MSU basketball podcast featuring an in-depth recruiting, game matchup, and post-game analysis. We dive deep to give you the best tools to enjoy the Spartans and impress your friends and family. Hey everybody, it's Eric alongside Rod. We're here for our Rutgers preview show. As Misha State looks to get back on track into winning ways in the Big Ten. Uh, before we start, I just wanted to announce that we are very excited to welcome in our first sponsor to the show, Nudge Printing. And, you know, when we look for people to advertise or be a part of your show, there couldn't be a better fit, I think, than Nudge Printing. This is a, a company that is owned and operated by Michigan State alumni, both Gabe and Brittany, graduate from Michigan State. They make high-quality apparel, sports apparel, which is exactly what our listeners want. And um, I don't know. I just couldn't – I don't think we could find a better better group to to be a part of our show. Um, you know, a couple other things about Nudge Printing. Not only do they carry Michigan State brands, but they carry the vintage stuff, like uh, the stuff that, I guess, you know, old guys like Rod and I recognize, the old the old gruff Sparty. And- well, then that's – and that's really, you know, for me as somebody who kind of cares about that stuff a little bit, I think that's, I've actually, I have, I have actually, I went back and discovered, I have actually ordered a couple items from them before they were sponsors of ours. And as somebody who appreciates design, um, the fact that they go back and, and bring back some of these, not only stuff that you and I would recognize, but stuff long before oh, us. Yeah. Um, I think is pretty great. And it's, it's interesting. It stands out from uh, the majority of MSU apparel that you see everywhere else. Yeah. And it's, it's good quality stuff. I'm looking forward to getting my order coming soon. The other great thing is there are 60 other schools that they have. I mean, every Michigan school is on there. So if you have a house divided, you know, if you want to get your Spartan gear and your spouse wants to get their central Michigan stuff, you certainly could do that. They do have a school in Washington County, so if you need to get your Eastern Michigan gear, you're welcome to get that as well. Uh, there is a there is a fence around that one school in Ann Arbor uh, that they don't provide gear for. But you know, we have to draw a line somewhere, and I think that's a pretty re- <laughs> reasonable one. That gave him Brittany said pretty out. good place to stop. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. They sell all kinds of cool stuff too, like if you want decals for your car or cornhole. And so anyway, uh, check it out. Listeners of the show actually get twenty percent off. So at the checkout, just type in Final Four, and you get your discount there. And get back to us. We find out what you think about their stuff too, but I think it's pretty great. And welcome so much. We're excited to have you, Nudge Printing. And you can find that at nudgeprinting.com. Also, you know, if you've not had the opportunity, please go and rate and review the show on your podcast player. We appreciate it. It helps other Spartan fans find the show. All right. So we keep talking about, and it's funny, it's, you think we're recording like weeks apart, Rod, but the news seems to change daily on what's going on with Malik Hall. And so let's start there. As Listeners know and fans of this team know Malik Hall had a stress reaction. We did not require surgery, so he missed 
uh, like three, four weeks, sort of the end of middle of November, sort of end of November through the beginning of December, came back and was sort of up to full speed, sustained a strange injury uh, where he kind of rolled his ankle on a, during the Michigan game. And then he re-aggravated that same ankle on the same side, which he had the stress reaction on, but unrelated, but same foot, the left, the left foot. And uh, at about an eight-minute mark or so, the Illinois game in Champaign, he left the game, was unable to return. And then it sounded like he was okay as far as the last we had heard before the Purdue game that he was going to be playing. And then we had news right before the game that he's out. And not only is he out, but it sounds like he's out for a long time. They met with some specialist in the, who said, you know, things don't look really good, don't look good. And it almost sounded like it might be a season-ending injury. And that's sort of kind of the way it sounded at the post-game show or presser with Izzo after Purdue. Well, then today, we're recording this the day after the Purdue game. It sounds like things are maybe different. Like, I don't know if it's different specialists or they reevaluated with the scans. I don't know. Different, different specialists. So, yeah, get put us up to line because obviously this affects the team. This is the, the best that I gather is, um, and Izzo did say they were waiting on other information to confirm. You know, it was very much doom and gloom yesterday, but he did offer that up that they were waiting on another with another specialist and apparently whomever it was that they were talking to um after the game after the purdue game uh i believe is the original person who saw his injury um and prescribed the plan of treatment that remember unlike unlike jade nakins malik didn't have any surgical procedure done correct this has been, you know, treatment and rest. And it was a stress reaction, not a stress fracture. From what I gathered, Izzo said that what was originally taken to be a sign of a break, they actually believe may be simply an indication of the healing process going on. Um, that's the best way I can describe it. Obviously, unlike you, I'm not a physician, <laughs> but you're not a specialist in this area either so we're both kind of relying on like everybody else we're relying on what we're being told by Izzo who is um you know relaying what he's being told by the specialist so the upshot is this it's still going to be a while he's not playing on Thursday it's probably not going to be in the next week he said maybe two weeks maybe three weeks but and, and I would say this, not to be pessimistic, because I'm not. I'm actually really, as I think most MSU fans are, I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that the door is not closed on him this year. But um, is it possible that he still doesn't end up coming back? Sure. I think you have to. We're, we're in very muddy waters here. I think we can all surmise that much. Right. Um, but. I think that the good news is we are sitting here. What's today's date? The 17th yes, or the 18th? 17th of January. Yep. 17th. If you could get him back by, let's say, some point in the first week of February, which sounds like that's what they're thinking right now, that's a lot of time to get him, assuming he, could, he comes back and he can stay healthy from there, which is a big assumption. But that's enough time to where at least you'd be getting him back into the swing of things 
both for the stretch run in the regular season and then for the postseason. Yep. Now that doesn't solve all your problems. You you know what you've got to do is you've got to you've got to at least tread water until then. You know until he does come back, but. You know, I also happen to think there's some reason to be optimistic on that front. I mean, we did talk about that yesterday. It, it was an extremely difficult loss to take for a number of reasons against Purdue. But one thing that's different about this team now versus this team going into Portland and the few weeks after that is Jaden Akins is back and fully in the swing of things. Right. And where that makes a big difference is on the defensive end. You saw it yesterday. You know, Michigan State had the best defensive performance in terms of efficiency grade out that anybody's had against Purdue yet this season. Purdue's played some pretty good teams, by the way. If you look at their record, you look at their schedule to date. Um, that means Michigan State played better defense against them than Rutgers did in a Rutgers victory. The only loss Purdue was taken. Yep you know, on and on and on. So that is a difference. And, and between, you know, two months ago and now, and that's an important difference because to me, it means Michigan state is still equipped to hang in there and do what they need to do until they can get Malik back. I frankly was, was of the opinion that they had enough to do what they need to do to get certainly to get into the tournament, even if they didn't have Malik back at all this year. And I still believe that now a lot of things have got to go right, but I'm just talking about the defensive side of the ball, because that's where I believe the biggest issues were for Michigan state when they had both of those guys out. And even in the immediate period after they got Jaden back, because he wasn't fully up to speed yet. That is no longer the case. This is a team that even without Malik, I think is capable of defending well, very well, as a matter of fact. Um, so the Malik thing, the other thing about it is there was a poster on the Spartan mag board that I think made a good point. Um, if you look around the big 10, there aren't a lot of great, big, small forwards. We just saw you know, one team that has a couple of them in Illinois. Yeah. But there aren't a lot of others, you know, Michigan has jet Howard. So you got to be worried about him. But part of the, part of the thing with jet Howard is because of the way he plays, you can actually defend him with a smaller player because he's so perimeter oriented mm -hmm. that he doesn't really use his size the way say a Terrence Shannon does, you know, right. Um, you get beyond much beyond those teams. There aren't a lot of them. There aren't a lot of guys, you know, six, seven, six, eight, six, nine at the three spot. That's where Malik really stands out for Michigan state. And as we've talked about, there have been matchups this season, Alabama being the obvious one with Brandon Miller, where they really miss not having Malik as, as an answer, you know, physically, but there aren't going to be many of those instances repeated the rest of the way in the big 10. So I think they can get it done um, with what they've, with what they've got uh, until they get him back. And then, as I say, if, if he does come back with like, you know, five weeks before four or five weeks before the tournament, well, that's plenty of time again, assuming health to get him fully back up to speed again. And then you're set, then you've got your full, your full complement 
to do whatever will happen in March, which I think is, you know, what every MSU fan wants to see. So it's not ideal by any stretch, but is it a better picture than we thought it was 24 hours ago? Without a doubt. So I guess the one question I have is, were they, was it concerned about, was it the concern of the ankle or was it the actual, the previous injury? No, this is the other thing. All weekend long, I heard ankle, had it confirmed by a couple of confirmed quotation marks around (laughs) it by a couple of people. And, and then when you listen to Izzo talk about it today, especially it seems to be related to the stress reaction. Okay. So that would, you know, there there were people who looked at the, at the rewatched the footage from the Illinois game when he got hurt and said, they didn't think they saw him twist an ankle. I never saw it. I didn't really see the play. And as you recall, we complained about this at the time. (laughs) <laughs> the the wisdom of the broadcast operation at Fox never showed it again. Yeah. So you you had no idea what actually happened to him. I never saw it again. Um, so it, it does appear that it was, in fact, a stress reaction and not and not the ankle. But, um, you know, we'll, we're, we're assuming that. But I think that's a safe assumption based on what Izzo said today. Yeah. And just for those who are interested, I guess. I talked to my orthopedic friends. And so a stress reaction is basically before you get a stress fracture. So everyone knows those are fractures or broken bone. So it's just that you have, and it's on your fifth metatarsal usually, which is your, your sort of your pinky toe. It's the bone that goes right up to your toe that sticks out that you can see. So that's where that reaction is. Which, where there's a lot of pressure there because that's your, like your you know arch and stuff. And so that's why people have trouble. You're jumping and doing high impact sports on your legs. That's an important point because Izzo, the other thing I noticed that Izzo did mention is he said that Malik has um, had suffered a broken toe in the past and there's scar tissue that developed as a result of that injury. Um, and that was a while back. I can't even remember when he did that. It might have even been over an off season. Mm-hmm. Um, but he said there's scar tissue and they think that that's related to this as well. So that would kind of correlate, I think, with what you're saying. It depends which toe, obviously, but yeah, certainly yeah. could. Well, I, I'm assuming it's the same one. Otherwise, yeah, it would be incident. He brought, yeah. he brought it up. Yeah, so right. I don't know why he'd bring it up, but who the hell knows? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, <laughs> you know, you could. Izzo's kind of goes all over the place, too, some way. He's kind of rambles a little bit. He does, bit, so. but I'm, a, I'm assuming somebody told him that. Yeah, right. <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, and I, I do agree with you too. And I, I, as far as Malik Hall's impact on the team and the one thing that I find very encouraging about it all, uh, you know, the fact, other than the fact that he can come back, I mean, just look at the schedule. If he comes back, say February 12th, which is a couple weeks from now, he makes it for the Ohio state game. Then they play the 15th at home against Minnesota. And then of course they have Michigan, Indiana, Iowa, Nebraska, Ohio state. You could still make, you know, eight games or seven, eight games, but the thing that I was most impressed with Malik Hall coming back, it was different than with Aikens. When Aikens came back, he was clearly not the same player. Like, you know, it took him a while to sort of come up to speed. When Hall came back, aside from his minutes not being, you know, 28, 29 minutes, he looked just as much like Malik. Seamless. Right? And so yeah. my expectations when he comes back, that we'll see the same thing. Like, as soon as he, whatever minutes you're getting from him, you're getting Malik Hall. You're not getting some less than Malik Hall. Yeah, I was thinking about that today. You hope so. Um, I guess it, I guess it depends on, you know, a number of things. It, oh, the other thing we should mention, by the way, at all, this is apparently he's out of the boot today. So <laughs> there's that. <laughs> yeah. Well, the boot has become a precautionary thing that you, you know, I know. Right? And so but, that's, yeah. 
But I'm not saying that that means that he's ready to go tomorrow. I'm just saying, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. The primary reason you use a boot is for stability. Yeah, immobilization. Right? Usually, so there's yeah. no movement to right. agitate the injury. So that would suggest that they don't think that there's anything that's going to be agitated by normal movement, by walking, you know, normal moving around, which would, I guess, go along with the notion that they, they don't think that there's something of, of um, a great severity at work, that it, it sounds like the suspicion is it's just a little more of the healing process has to go on. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's tough. You know, when you look at scans, I'll nod my head to the radiologist, you know, inflammation, it's hard to know if it's new or if it's acute, you know, chronic or acute. And so I imagine it's not, it's, it's difficult to sort of discern the di the difference between, you know, is this a new injury or is this just the, the healing process from the old injury? And, and I think a lot of these, a lot of these are just based on symptoms, right? If he's having pain, you're like, well, you know, just will kind of ease off. And my guess is he probably is having some pain and they're like, all right, let's give it a week. Once you're pain free, then we're going to give it another week to make sure it's really okay. Make sure you can practice and stuff. And then you're, you're go. I mean, that'd be my assumption. If you're going to say you might have a two week window. And what you just said, the, the difficulty in sorting out is this a healing process from a previous injury, or is this a new issue is it sounds like, some of what was going on in over the weekend and uh, up until now yeah. where they're getting these different reads on, on, uh, on what the scans are showing, you know, yep. but, um, look, by, we, we'll, we'll all find out together. Uh, but I, I just think the fact that there's, there's hope and there's reason for optimism is, is a good thing because that door seemed 99% closed. 24 hours. Ago. Yeah. I mean, it sounded like it might be season injury ending, whatever the injury was. Oh, right? absolutely. It sounded that the, the, so this is good. News. Where it was going. I mean, again, it's funny. Normally, normally there's, and I'm not saying I'm not by a long shot. Am I saying I'm privy to everything? This proves that, but, um, normally I get a decent read on things like this. In advance, like we talked about, we, we knew that uh, probably three days, two, three days before it was announced that um, that Malik was hurt the first time. Yeah. You know, that news started to circulate out of the MSU camp in in certain very tight circles. Right. And we we're fortunate enough to have a couple of different people tell us that um, this time not only did we not hear what actually came to pass yesterday, but as I, we were just discussing, I was even hearing a different injury that it was an aggravation of the ankle, um, that he suffered against Michigan and, and not, and not a, a, an issue related to the stress reaction. So, um, you know, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> we're all, we're all kind of, um, we're all kind of operating in, uh, in, um, a, an environment where it's, uh, There's it's murky. The fog and of I war. think that includes, yeah. I think that includes Tom Izzo. I think that includes Malik Hall. I, I don't think it's unique to, to fans. I think everybody is kind of in muddy waters and 
You're just hoping to get some clarity as the next several days to a couple of weeks roll on and, and hopefully we get them back on the floor. Yeah. And the one thing I do like about Izzo and the releasing of health information, you know, with Mel Tucker, you never had any idea what's going on with anybody. So you couldn't, he's sore. Yeah. Right. He's sore. And he'll, <laughs> he'll be better when he's better. I mean, which is fine right. for a game prep and stuff, but I don't know for fans, I think it's important to kind of know that stuff. And I, you know, I guess in football is different, but I, I'm glad we at least know some and we, cause otherwise it's very, you have to have a very bleak outlook into the season. And so this makes it encouraging. Like you said, tread water for a little bit, maybe steal a couple of games and then, you know, hear full compliment of players by postseason. Yeah. I think some of that is Izzo because he, you know, we all know this by now we're used to him being about as candid as any coach in America. I mean, he just doesn't hide a lot, right. you know? Um, and, and yet I also think some of it is the difference of the sports. I think football culture is one that is much more oriented toward it, it's almost, I mean, football as a sport, does it not resemble the military more than any other sport? Well, I mean, yes. And there's that, more prep that's time, essentially right? what it is. It, it totally changes how you game plan. Like I, you game plan in basketball, but in football, it's, you know, totally different. If you've got, a, you know, wide receivers missing or a quarterback's different, it just can be much more but significant. But I'm just saying even, even the, beyond that, even just the culture of the sports, the culture yeah. of football. I mean, George Carlin years ago used to do <laughs> this. Um, yes. To, that to is great. That Hopefully is great some thing. of you listening are old enough to remember George Carlin, but um, he used to do, he had a joke about the differences between baseball and football. He's like, hey. Baseball's played in a, in, in a park, right? Football's played in a stadium right? and or Coliseum. Uh, it was that kind of, uh, that kind of thing, but it is true. I mean, football does resemble warfare more than any other sure, sport. Yeah. And I think part of that culture is in this, Hey, we don't want anybody knowing what's going on in our building until it's game time. And then they'll find out, you know, it's that culture of secrecy and, yeah. and keeping things close to the vest. And, you know, we don't want the game plan getting out all of these things. Basketball, I'm not saying that everybody handles it the way Izzo does, but I think you're much more likely to have an openness in basketball than you are in football. So I don't entire, I'm, I'm saying all that to not entirely blame Mel Tucker for the way he approaches <laughs> it, because I think that's largely consistent among most football coaches, but you're right. It's a very big difference yeah, for those who bet it's totally different than the NFL versus Absolutely. right. I mean, the NFL, they have to announce all those injuries and make it, you know, as much, I guess, openness as possible because it betting is so huge in well, all sports. Um, yeah. The best part of guard is uh, the George Collins line is where he ends with in baseball. You're trying to make it home. So, you know, uh, right. <laughs> so moving on to let's talk about the Rutgers, the, the uh, Rutgers coming in, the Scarlet Knights coming into the Breslin 13-5 overall in the season, 5-2 and two in the Big Ten. They're in second place. They're number 14th overall in Ken Palm. That's got to be one of the highest rankings ever, I think. In Ken Palm. Oh, I think it is. Yeah. I think it's the peak. They're 116th in offense. No surprise there. But they're number three on defense, which I guess is also no surprise. Uh, so they're kind of the typical profile for Peichel. Uh They're miserable shooting, 32.5% from three, which making them 260th in the country uh, in twos also. Uh they don't get to the line a lot, so only 193rd in uh, free throw attempts per field goal average uh, assist attempts. 
Turnover percentage is not very good. They're 104th, but they're rebounding really well on offense. They're number 33. They're no Purdue, but they're pretty good. Uh, they also shoot free throws pretty well when they do get there at number 74. On defense, this is where they shine. They're 13th in the country on twos. They're 13th against the threes. They're 26th in blocking shots. Uh, they'd force quite a few turnovers too that makes them 13th in turnover percentage. And number five in steal percentage. Uh, they do foul quite a bit, so they're 97th in fouling. Uh, they don't defensive rebound great, which is kind of surprising for as well as their offensive rebounding because they're only 157th, but you know maybe that's a reflection of their shot blocking. Uh, so in you know many ways, they're kind of like a Rutgers, a usual Rutgers team, but they're just better than they've been in the past. Yeah, they're, they're, I think what's happened is the last couple of years, you know, if you start at the beginning of Peichel's tenure, when they just didn't have very much talent at all, he very quickly established a culture and that culture was built around defense and rebounding. And that made them competitive pretty much right away. They were able to at least be competitive because they did those things very well. And that's usually enough to keep you in games and allow you to steal a few, even when you don't have a lot of offensive talent. And they certainly did. As they got better talent. So I'm talking about as they got, you know, the Ron Harper juniors and um, oh, I'm drawing a blank on the kid that was the transfer from Texas, their guard young. Um, as they got guys that were a little more talented offensively, they were still a good defensive team and still a good rebounding team. But especially the last couple of years, if you look at the numbers, they weren't what they had been in early the early Pikel tenure. That has changed with this group. They are back to pretty much the Pikel staples, but they're doing them extremely well. And yet I still think, even though the offense is far from great, I still think the talent level is clearly better than it was in the early stages of his, his tenure. I mean, he's look, he's turned it around. They, they just got an announcement um, from a 2024 five-star recruit from Georgia committed to them yesterday. So they're not going to get him until the year after next, but they've already got a four-star committed in that class. They add him. And I would think they are at worst co-favorites with Duke. And I would probably assume they're slight favorites for a kid named Dylan Harper, who is the son of Ron Harper senior, the brother of Ron Harper junior, whom I just mentioned, who is by most accounts, a top five kid in the 24 class point being their 2024 class looks like the breakthrough. I had, when, when we were in the early stages of this podcast, I don't remember if it was our first year, maybe our second year that we were doing it, that Pykel got the job. And I was, Sam, my co-host at the time, and I were both immediately impressed by what he was able to do. Yeah. And my, my feeling about it had been, okay, I like the way this guy's going about his business because he's establishing a culture. And then as he gradually increases the talent level, he should be able to become more competitive to the point that they could start competing for postseason bids. And then at that point, you'll see if they can really ramp the recruiting up because Rutgers, obviously being a school in New Jersey, they sit squarely in the middle of very, very flush recruiting territory. Right. I mean, New Jersey produces a lot of talent and they, you have access to the whole Eastern seaboard, right? Mm -hmm. 
The problem is they've never been a school of choice in that area. So it's been very difficult for them. I think the first breakthrough was actually a kid that's on their current team. Omarui, their, their center, mm-hmm. was a top 50 recruit and a big get for them. That was the first sign that, okay, Pico was starting to make that last step, that last breakthrough to the point where he can actually attract high-level talent. And then at that point, you can maybe become a consistent contender for things. But he's now starting to flex even more muscle. I mean, the fact that they went down to Georgia and beat out North Carolina and Kentucky for a top 10 kid. That's, and and I don't think Rutgers is, I mean, not that there are any games you can really play anymore with with the way the rules have changed, but I don't think Rutgers is, I've never heard anything about it. Steve Peichel doesn't strike me as that kind of guy. Um, He's done a hell of a job there. I really, of all the other big 10 coaches, uh, he's the guy who I probably like the best and admire the most for what he's done. Because let me tell you, not only is that not an easy job, I would posit that when he took it, it was one of the hardest jobs in the country. And that's just based on reality, uh, the reality of what the years and years and years of outcomes have told you Yeah, at Rutgers. You know, a very, very difficult place to win. And he has turned them into a consistent winner. They are they are looking to get their third straight tournament bid. And had it not been for COVID canceling the 2020 tournament, they'd be working on number four in a row because they were going that year, too. Yeah, that alone is incredible in that job. But the fact that he's actually elevating them and now for the first time as we sit here, you know, if, if Michigan State had had stopped one more Purdue possession, we'd be talking about a game between two of the three teams tied for first. Right. Yeah. That's where he's got Rutgers. He's got him a game out of first. So for the moment, at least they're actually in title contention. And by the way, they're the only team to beat Purdue thus far. Right. Yeah. So in Purdue, at Purdue. And, <laughs> right. And on top of that, they should actually only have one loss in the league because they got robbed in Columbus. Yeah. yeah. If people think back to that game. So he has done an amazing job, in my opinion. I just, I admire the hell out of anybody that can come in and just create a program from basically nothing. And he did that. And now he's really starting to reap the rewards because he's finally at the point, whatever he is, year six, year seven into his tenure, that he's able to go out and compete for really, really great players. And that's what it's going to take. I think to elevate their offensive performance. I mean, you mentioned they're, they're not good on but offense is typically where talent or lack of talent will show up. Mm -hmm. You can, you can scheme and grit your way into effective defense. Now I think it's more than that. He's recruited to it. And he's recruited to rebounding. So I think it's more than just, oh, guys that are working hard and they're coached up. But the fact is, you can do that with guys who for the level are maybe the level of player, maybe more marginally talented, but you can't fake shot making. <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you, you just can't, eventually, if you don't have a higher degree of talent um, in terms of ball skills on your roster, uh, you're going to run into a little bit of a ceiling on offense. 
So if he can get these, that level of player, which he's doing now to come into his program. And this is the tricky part. The hardest trick for him yet to turn is he's got to be able to get guys at that level to buy into his thing. Right. So yes, they have the talent to be better offensively, but are they going to defend? Are they going to rebound the way his teams have in the past? That is what has put Tom Izzo into the hall of fame, by the way, is that he has always been able to recruit great talent, great athletes, guys with great ball skills and get them sooner or later. It can take a couple of years in some instances, (laughs) but sooner or later, he gets them to buy into his thing which is not too dissimilar from Peichel's in a general sense. You got to rebound and you got to defend in order to play at Michigan state. And he gets those highly talented players to buy into that. And that's, that's why he's in the hall of fame. So yeah, anyway, that's uh, enough of the Rutgers PR machine, but (laughs) as opposed to some of the things you'll hear me say about other programs in this league from time to time, Illinois, Iowa, (laughs) Michigan, yeah. (laughs) um, Ohio state. Uh, I am, I am generally these two games back to back Purdue and Rutgers. I think these are outside of East Lansing. These are the two best coached programs in the conference that Michigan state is facing. And I think the most impressive thing with the Rutgers is that it is a school with, as far as I can tell, no tradition. I mean, certainly not in basketball, but hardly really even in football and it's an athletic department that's like in their athletic department is kind of uh, I think they've been like losing money. They're a money loser. I mean, they've been a, so they've had all kinds of problems. So I can't imagine they have the best facility. I mean, it's got to be hard to sort of create to create a, a winning team, you know, in the major sports. Here, here's what they've got. They have one final four, which was in large part fueled by the recruiting efforts of one Dick Vitale. I've heard an assistant coach. He brought in the guys who led to that final four in the mid seventies. They was 76. Um, and, uh, and I believe if I remember correctly, aren't, isn't it Rutgers and Princeton played the first, uh, intercollegiate football game in history. Yeah. I believe that's That's, the case. (laughs) A tradition. That's kind of it. Yeah. Right. Exactly. That's kind of it. That's where it stops. And you're right. But look, Rutgers, got let's be honest about it they were brought into the big 10 because the thinking was they bring with them the new york city television market which one can debate how much that means going forward in a world of changing television structures or streaming you know what we're calling television um but it was for rutgers it was a lifeline the, the two programs that got added in that cycle, Rutgers and Maryland, were both Maryland too, were in horrible shape in terms of their athletic department finances. So the Big Ten, not too dissimilar from UCLA, mm-hmm. at least in this next round. USC was maybe a little different, but UCLA was in bad shape. So uh, the Big Ten really threw Rutgers a lifeline. I'm not, I'm not sure where they are now. I have to believe that this many years into their membership. Uh, they are in, uh, and certainly with the new contract coming into place, they'll be in solid ground going forward, but you're right. Look, everybody loves the rack. What I think, what is it? Jersey Mike's now they call it. <laughs> yeah, it's right. the rack. Yeah. Just like, I'm not going to call assembly hall and champagne state farm arena. It's assembly hall. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but the rack 
has become this great building because people love the old school feel of it, the intimacy, and, and it is a great home court advantage for them. But let's be honest. It won't last long. It's kind of a, yeah, it's good to be honest. It's kind of, it's kind of a facility, right? <laughs> and I don't know that they have a practice facility. I'm kind of doubting that they do. I haven't looked into it, but you're right. That's another reason why it's really impressive what Pico has done, because you know, he is not operating with the same ammo that Tom Izzo or Chris Holtman or Mike Woodson or, you know, any of these other guys, Matt Painter, any of these other guys have at their disposal you know he's he's kind of got if not a full hand tied behind his back then at least three quarters of one (laughs) and and yet here he is should we talk about the players now sure all right let's go through the starters we'll start with the guy and i this i struggle this every time is i i can't help but think of mash the tv show paul mckahey (laughs) six six senior averaging 8.6 points a game on 41 39 and 89 uh, he aver- grabs a three to point seven rebounds a game, leads his team in assists with better than a two to one ratio. You know, tall guy, smart, and uh, he is he's a player that I've always liked, even when he's a freshman. And he just continues to get better and more skilled. Yeah, me too. Um, he, it's funny because on the merits, he should be a really hateable guy, and. <laughs> And I, I imagine in some fan bases, he probably is. I don't know, but um, he's a white guard, which that alone can get some people's hackles up, especially if they're, um, shall we say, assertive on the court and boisterous. And he is. He wears a headband. Right. That doesn't help. Um, he, he just checks all the boxes for obnoxious opponent. But I still like him. And that's after he chewed Michigan State up last year. If you remember that game that Rutgers blew MSU out, he had 15 points and 12 assists. And he basically spent, as I recall, at least the entire second half, it seemed he spent in the middle of the lane, either backing MSU guards down and scoring or just spraying the ball to shooters from that spot. And we've seen this year in the Big Ten as much as at any time in recent memory I mean, if you look at what A.J. Hogart has done playing kind of that way, you look at what Jalen Pickett has done at Penn, at Penn State playing that way, Mulcahy is capable of doing those same things as well, and he really worked MSU last year doing exactly that. He's just he's the guy who makes them go. He just makes really good decisions. He's a good passer and has good court vision, and the fact that he's 6'6 doesn't hurt either because he can, he can see over defenders frequently. Um, very good shooter. He doesn't take a lot of shots, but when he does shoot, you know, 39% from three, this is a bad three point shooting team. He's one of the two guys. I don't think you want to leave open. Sure. Yeah. Especially after last year game. Well, sp- oh, and he's also a good defensive player too. Yeah. Right. On top of that. Well, that, I mean, that almost goes for, goes without saying at Rutgers. Um, and then you were talking about spraying the ball around. Well, the guy he's been spraying around to the lot this season is Cam Spencer, six four senior transfer from Loyola, Maryland. He's been, you know he's been more than they had probably expected. He averages almost fourteen points a game and 47, 47 and ninety four shooting, three to one turnover to, or assist to turnover ratio, 
and averages almost two and a half steals a game. I, he is a problem, and he's been a problem for a lot of teams. He's also won two games this year with buzzer-beating shots. Um, so he's been a guy who's stepped up in big moments for them and made plays. Um, he's a really interesting guy. I think you're right. They thought he would help. I don't think they expected he would be this big a factor on their team. Uh, there are two guards in the conference this year above all others that I think have done that transfer up thing and been really, really good. He's one. The other is Andrew Funk at Penn state. And they're similar in the sense that both of them have a very quick shot release. So it is hard to shut them down. If you give them even a half a second of a window, they can get a shot off. The difference between them is I think Spencer has slightly better shot selection. He'll take some too. That is at times that you'll think, wow, that's a deep shot, but he hits enough of them that you can't really, you can't really blame him. Look, 47% 47% from three, it's pretty simple. You got to know where Cam Spencer is at all times. <laughs> yeah. Uh, another interesting thing about him, you may remember a few years back, maybe it was three years ago, Northwestern had a very unusual grad transfer. They had a guy named Pat Spencer who transferred in. I, he was a cross player, right? Correct. Yeah. This is his brother. Ah, okay. So there's a little bit of a Big Ten connection there um but yeah uh just i I, look at ruckers offense struggles anyway i don't know where they'd be without cam spencer he's been hugely important all right so the next player will be caleb mcconnell 6'5 senior he averages 9.8 points a game on 43 21 and 76 shooting and also pulls down 5.4 rebounds a game great defensive player reigning defensive player of the year in the big 10 was he and he started at Nebraska, if I recall? No, no, he's always, oh, he's always been been a Rutgers. Okay. He's just had he's been plagued by injury problems at times, but man, when he's been healthy, it, it's funny because earlier in his career, he was I mean, he's not a great shooter now, but he was really bad. It was rough, but he was just one of Pykel's guys. You could see that Pykel kept playing him over other guys that look like they might have a little more offensive talent just because he really liked the versatility and the defense and the grit and the smarts that he played with. Well, all that's continued. And although he's still not a great jump shooter by any stretch, um, he's better able than he used to be to find ways to score, but he's an elite defensive player. I mean, returning big 10 defensive player of the year tells the story. Uh, just a really, really good and versatile perimeter defender. He's big enough that, you know, he could guard basically for sure anybody one through three at the very least. Mm -hmm. So this is across the board. It is a very experienced and um, very strong defensive group, this perimeter threesome for Rutgers. This is one of the few games where I think you go in and you don't feel like Michigan state necessarily has a decisive advantage. I think that they are better in certain areas than Rutgers guards are. I think Michigan state is more athletic, certainly, um, and certainly more explosive offensively, but man, you look at six, 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 five, six, four. Yeah. They've got good size. 
They all know what they're doing. They've been around a long time, at least with Mulcahy and McConnell. They've played together for a long time, um, four years now. Uh, and and, they ju- and they, they're all capable passers, and they just play the kind of basketball that Steve Peichel wants, to put it succinctly. Then we'll talk about Mawat Ma- Mag, 6'7 junior. Uh, he's been injured a lot, but he's uh, averaging 7.6 points a game on 47 26 and 74 shooting and pulls down 5.4 rebounds a game yeah he had injury problems his first two years which sort of limited him but he's been healthy this year and that's a big boost for Rutgers because he gives them again he's not your he's not your uh standard issue four man and that he's not particularly big and he's also not really a credible stretch threat but he gives them some athletic ability. He plays with a very high motor and, um, and that's been good enough. You know, that's, but he's been productive enough for Rutgers to feel pretty decent about what they're getting out of him. And finally, Clifford Amarui, 6'10 junior, uh, one of the better bigs in the, in the conference, averaging 13.2 points a game on 49, 22, 62 shooting, grabbing 10.1 rebounds a game and blocks two shots of the game. I mean, he is, uh, he's been, he's dominant now. I mean, I think he's a, he's, he's going to be a problem. <laughs> it seems like we say this every, with every team we go up against. Uh, this is what I've been saying, right? That you just go up and down the big 10 and every single, I mean, that's the thing we've seen guys in recent weeks, like, uh, like Derek Walker or, um, uh, uh you know, danger, at Illinois, you guys that most people don't talk about very much, and they're really good players. Uh, Kroll at Wisconsin, you know, this guy, I think, in my opinion, if you, if you say that the upper echelon in the league is obviously Edie's in a category of his own. Yeah. And then after that, you probably talk about, I don't know, you talk about Dickinson, um, I guess I'd have to think about who, oh, and, and Trace Jackson Davis. Those two guys would probably be your, your next level down. And then I think the third level, this guy is in that group. Yeah. And, and maybe even you might be able to talk me into putting him in the Jackson Davis Dickinson group because he's averaging a double double. You know, so you start with that. He's doing a lot of damage. He's as good a dunker as there is in this league. When he gets the ball around the rim, he attacks it. Yeah, he's strong. I mean, he doesn't leave doubt. Yeah, he's strong. He he was a highly regarded recruit. He was the first major recruit that Steve Peichel landed. And I think he was up and down. Injuries held him back a little bit at times during that freshman year, which was a weird year anyway with COVID and all of that. I thought last year he made noticeable steps to becoming a consistent game in, game out threat. And now I think he has fully arrived as the level of player that they thought he was going to be. Um, he's athletic. He's strong. He's big. Uh, the one knock I would say, well, two knocks. One is I think at times he can get, a, we touched on this when we were talking about their team profile. He's a very good shot blocker, but I think he suffers from occasionally getting a little greedy in that area. And I think that contributes a bit to Rutgers, maybe not being as good a defensive rebounding team as you might expect them to be because they're, they're very mediocre. They're middle of the pack nationally. 
And I think some of that's on him. Uh, the other, well, two other things. Another thing, he doesn't shoot free throws particularly well. He's in the low 60s. That can be a problem for a big man who's going to draw a lot of contact, usually will get a lot of opportunities. Um, you know, we saw in the Purdue game yesterday, Zach Eady goes six for seven at the line. That's a big, big positive when you're big man you know he go to the stripe and and nail free throws. Right, right. And Rutgers doesn't doesn't quite um doesn't quite have that. And the other thing, it's a relatively minor thing, but it does stand out to me. He's taken 18 threes this year and he's hit four of them. Yeah, weird. He should not be attempting one three pointer per game. That shot should be a rarity. You know, I, I mean I I'm to me, that's almost if you're if you're Steve Peichel, that that's like a turnover. Yeah, you know when that guy's taking that shot, he just shouldn't. You know, if if you want to say once in a great while, when a shot really presents itself, the rhythm of the game is such. Not even is he open because he's probably open all the time from out <laughs> yeah. there. But it's is the rhythm of the game such that it makes sense to take it. Okay. And that probably only comes around once every three games, Sure, not once a game, but again, you look at all the positives he gives you. It's a minor complaint. Well, then we'll look at the bench for Rutgers. First, we'll start off with Andre Hyatt, 6'6", 225 pound junior transferred last year from LSU. He's uh, averaging 9.6 points a game on 39, 31 and 76 shooting and grabs four and a half rebounds a game. Yeah, I, I like him. You know, he's been a part-time starter for them. He's coming off the bench now that they've got everybody back healthy because they had some injury issues earlier this year. You know, their overall record, they've got five losses, but a couple of those you might attribute to uh, Mulcahy and McConnell being a little banged up at times. Um, since they've gotten everybody back, I think Hyatt's moved into a sixth-man role, and he's really good. I like him. You know, he's... He's an undersized four man, but he plays, um, he plays hard. He's strong. He's reasonably athletic and he's got a high motor, um, you know, respectable ish shooter, um, you know, good enough that you don't feel horrible about him taking the three, but maybe not good enough to be considered a real threat, but he can do some damage at the rim, you know, reasonably good defensive player, just a, a nice guy to kind of have and slot in there for, for a, a decent amount of reserve minutes. Sure. 10 points off the bench. You'll take that. Derek Simpson, six, three freshman guard averaging 6.7 points a game on 35, 24 and 81 shooting. Uh, he has 28 assists to 18 turnovers. So, you know, freshman, and he's playing about half a game. Yeah, minutes. he's been good though. I didn't I I wasn't expecting him to be as good as he's been. I think the next step is going to be that he finds more consistency as a shooter, but based on what I've seen from him, I think he's a guy that they will expect to follow in the line of guys like McConnell and Mulcahy and that over time he's going to um he's going to f- unlock more offensively you know, six, three, and he can play point guard. So he's got good size for that position looks to be a good athlete. And he has a look of a guy who should be more effective offensively than he's been. So I think it's a matter of time, but you know, he's given him 20 minutes a game off the bench as a freshman and he's leapfrogged a couple of guys in that rotation to get to that spot. So they obviously like him and, and think he's got a bright future as, you know, another 
bigger two-way guard for Rutgers. Uh, next will be Antoine Woolfolk, 6'9", 250-pound freshman, averaging 3.1 points a game uh, and 2.2 rebounds a game in about nine minutes. Yeah, he's another one that I think you can feel good about if you're Steve Peichel down the line. For this year, it's pretty simple. Uh, he was a former high-level football recruit, but uh, they convinced him to play basketball. I believe he's from Cleveland. Um, so kind of an under the radar guy because nobody was really sure which sport he was going to play. And, you know, he wasn't seen as a high, high level recruit, but I've seen enough just in his reserve role to think that was a worthwhile gamble. You know, he's already a pretty good finisher when he gets opportunities and he's got a nice combination of size and athletic ability that I think he's got a chance. He's got a chance to maybe be a starter uh, down the line. Uh, For now, all they need from him is like one four-minute turn per half just to give Omarui a break. And um, he at least gives them that physical presence and, again, decent athleticism at the same time. So uh, another nice recruiting find, I think, for Pico. I think he'll be good. Let's move further down the bench. We get to Dean Reber, 6'10 junior, averaging 1.6 points a game and a rebound a game in about seven minutes, shooting 37, 23, and 50. Yeah, I, you know, I, I forgot to – I went back and I looked at Mulcahy's stats from last year's game. I didn't check Reber's, but I have this haunting memory <laughs> of Reber busting MSU for at least a couple of threes. That's what they expected from him. When they brought him in, the thought was – this is a modern stretch for he's 6'10, so he can do some things in the paint, but he can also hit threes and and force a defense to extend and allow us to spread the floor. It hasn't quite panned out. Uh, he's never really been able to consistently get his jumper dialed in. And so that's been a limiter for him offensively because he's really not a back to the basket guy. He's he's not going to score in a lot of other ways if he's not hitting the jumper. Um, but he's, you know, he's playing consistently. He'll, he'll likely see the floor at some point in this game. And finally, Jalen Miller, six, two sophomore guard who plays occasionally. Yeah. And they really, you know, they brought him in last year and they really liked him defensively. And I think they still do. And he played a role for them last year, but he's kind of been, I mentioned he's been leapfrogged by Simpson. So I would still think he's got a chance to be more of a factor as he matures, but I don't know if he's going to be the main man that they thought he might be last season um, as he becomes an upperclassman. All right. We're going to step away for just a moment and then we'll come back with our nudge printing keys to the game. There's no I in team, but there is one in indeed. And that's the hiring platform that you need to build yours. When you're hiring, you need indeed. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring platform that can help you do it all. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because Indeed does the hard work for you. They show you the candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your description immediately after you post so you can hire faster. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great, 
talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash blue wire sports offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at indeed.com slash blue wire sports. That's indeed.com slash blue wire sports and support the show by saying that you heard it on this podcast. Indeed.com slash blue wire sports terms and conditions apply. Need to hire you need indeed. All right, nudge printing keys to the game. Five keys. The number one is Spencer. He is definitely a problem, and he's not someone that Michigan State has faced before. Yeah, uh, you know, fortunately, they've seen guys of this ilk. The close, the closest comparison, and it's an easy one to make because they're both kind of bigger, white transfer up guards in the Big Ten this year to me is the kid at Penn state funk. But I think Spencer is, as I said, has a little better sense of shot selection, <laughs> he has which makes him right. He has a sense. He has a conscience. Uh, but uh, I think that makes him a little tougher because he's not going to, he's not going to be as likely to take a questionable shot. Here's the thing. The guy's shooting 47% from three and he's their leading scorer. So he's obviously number one on your scouting report. I think this is an interesting game strategically for Michigan state. We're coming off one where they basically decided they're not going to let kind of the standard issue Purdue game plan where we're not going to let Purdue take a lot of threes and we're going to let their post kind of work one-on-one. We're not going to send a lot of help. The, the one exception to that was Michigan State did send help off of Ethan Morton. Correct. And they managed to bait Morton into taking threes, and he missed them all. He was 0 for 3, I think. Um, the difference here is I think Rutgers only has two guys at the most that you're not comfortable taking shots. Spencer's the first one, and then Mulcahy would be the other guy although he's not a high volume guy, but he has been efficient and that's not just this year. I think he's proven that over the latter stages of his career, that he's not necessarily a guy you you want taking wide open jumpers. Uh, and then you look at Omarui, he's a load as we were talking about in the post. So, and on top of that, we know that they'll sometimes, you know, their game plan is to try to get Mulcahy into the lane to operate from around the basket area, you know? So is this a game in which Michigan state does what we've seen them do more this year than maybe any other year in the Izzo era and start to send help, particularly at Omarui? You can't do it off Spencer and you probably can't do it off Mulcahy, but anybody else, I think you can. Mm-hmm. And so do they have rules that are set up to allow them to do that? If they do fine, but what can't happen is there can't be confusion that leads to cam Spencer getting wide open looks. Right. Same for Mulcahy too, but it's really important with Spencer. And I think, I feel like Michigan state generally is pretty good when they have one shoot, they try and isolate and prevent from getting open shots. They seem to do pretty good this season on that. I would agree. I think if you, if you look at the Penn State game, um, and Penn State's got a lot of shooters, but they really took Funk away. I mean, right. Funk, it wasn't just, oh, he missed shots. It's Funk didn't get shots. I think he only got 
two or three attempts for the game. Yeah, right. He almost he had no. And luck. that's a guy whose whole thing is predicated on shooting threes. I mean, that's all he does. Um, you're right about that. Historically, that's true. If you give Michigan State one guy to zero in on, they generally do a pretty good job of taking him away. Um, I think Spencer is a challenge because not only does Rutgers do a good job of finding him, but he's one of those guys that I would call a shot hunter. He, he moves well to find space, to find gaps in the defensive coverage, you know, to make sure that he's getting himself into spots where he's going to be able to get an open look, you know, and that's a, that's a feel. That's a, I think that's, I mean, I think it's something you can get better at, but I also think that there's something of an innate feel that guys have with that. And I think he has it. Mm -hmm. So he's going to be a challenge. The thing is, um, probably I would, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what they do. I just look at their size and that the natural thought would be that Walker gets him first, because although he's not small, he is the smallest of Rutgers guards. And, and obviously Tyson's a good enough defender that you feel pretty good about that. But I suspect that MSU will end up throwing a variety of guys at it. Well, they, they probably feel comfortable switching a lot anyway. When you've got they do. Aikens and, and uh, Hobart yeah. out there as well. Yep. All right. So the next key to the game, threes. So I don't know. I guess we could say Michigan State's better. They got, they got some threes. They're dropping about 30 plus 32% against Purdue. Hall's gone. Well, when you're Hall's, coming off 0 for yeah, 0 for seven, and then they weren't good the two games before that. Michigan and um, and the Illinois, or yeah, Illinois and Michigan, obviously were not good. So, uh, you know, right. is this a trend? Is I mean, Hall is out, so he's one of the better shooters. You've got you've got obviously a lot of 37 percent plus shooters, and then you have Hogard. I mean, you, I would if I'm Rutgers, I imagine they're going to bait Hogard in shooting as many as as they as he can as a as he will take, right? Just like we did with Morton. I yeah, I think I think the thing is that AJ, AJ one difference between him and a guy like Morton is one, AJ has an ability to get himself into better shots, even when you're doing that, which a guy like Morton doesn't really have. With his handle and his strength and his knack, right? Yeah. For getting into the rim, he doesn't have to settle. And and I think generally speaking, I don't have a lot of complaints with AJ's shot selection. I don't feel like he's forcing a lot of threes. You know, any any time he launches, you kind of because uh, he's not the shooter that some other guys are. But I don't feel like he's been excessive. Um, I, you know, one thing about the Hall absence that I think is true: the one thing that hurts you there is we know Malik is good enough operating around the basket that he will be worthy of drawing increased attention from defenses. Right. And so his absence means you've got, you don't have that throw it inside and maybe generate a more open look from three as a result element. Right. Um, but look, the bottom line is it is tough for Michigan state to generate enough offense to win these higher level games if they're not being productive from three. So I would like to hope that what we saw in the second half when they were four for 11 and that counts the, you know, the last right, yeah. they had, I would like to hope that that's an indication 
that they're coming out of this little mini funk that they've been in. Um, but it remains to be seen. I mean, Rutgers, look, Rutgers is good defensively any way you take it. They stop you inside the arc. They stop you outside the arc. So you can't count on MSU getting just a ton of clean looks. But I would say that Rutgers doesn't always face the shooters, nor do they face the passers that Michigan State has. Yeah. So I do think there will be opportunities. And um, Michigan State's got to cash in. Yeah. Well, I think that, and that, you know, even look at the Michigan game, it's not like there were a lack of opportunities and good, good looks. They had plenty and they just weren't dropping and they just, they have to hit them. And they had them against Purdue as well. And they missed those open ones. The, the one game where they didn't, they didn't get that was Illinois because Correct. Illinois just sold out to take them away. Yeah. These other games, I thought yesterday against Purdue, I thought they missed a lot of good shots. Yeah. I mean, Brooks had a couple that he's been, he was hitting Brooks, early in the season. Um, you know, Hauser missed some good looks. Yep. Aikens. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so the number three key to the game, penetration. And this is of the defensive type. Yeah, and, and Rutgers is not, you know, normally when you talk about that, what you're what you usually mean is guys taking you all the way to the rim. They're, they're capable of doing some of that too, but I'm really talking about what we alluded to earlier in the in the uh discussion. Uh, Mulcahy getting himself into the lane. That is death against these guys and he <laughs> proved it last year if he can get himself into the lane because he's big enough that he can finish it just causes all kinds of problems because you got to kind of collapse around him and that then allows him to spray the ball to shooters and guys who might be 25 percent shooters suddenly become 35 percent shooters because they're so open because he distorted your defense right. you know so that's that's the concern, I think, uh, with um, with what he in particular can do is you got to keep him out of the lane. Now, I haven't. You'd have to you'd have to threaten me with death to get me to rewatch that Rutgers game from oh, that last was horrible. year. Horrible, yeah. But that was a rough one, and, and so I don't recall what specifically the issue was because obviously Michigan state has similar personnel, you know, their, their primary three guys were all there last year. So why that happened, I'm not sure, but I do know that there's no good reason for it to happen again. Yeah. Well, I think part of it, he was just feeling, he was feeling it as well. He started hitting shots and then, he then you collapse on him and then other people start hitting shots and it just becomes a, you know, a landslide. And they shot extremely well, as I recall too, they were kind of, it was kind of out of body yeah. evening. Right. Or afternoon for them. <laughs> Number four key to the game, turnovers. Michigan State has been a much better turnover team than usual Michigan State teams. Still top 50. But they've yeah, hit double digits the last couple of games. And, you know, it, there have been a couple silly mistakes. A.J. Hogart avoided a couple dumb turnovers that they fortunately didn't, you know, give the ball up to Purdue, but just throwing off Joey Hauser's back. Uh, they got to avoid the self-inflicted ones. And then, um, you know, a, that's probably the big thing to not, not give a team that has trouble scoring extra opportunities to score. Yeah. Uh, you know, the difference in this game is Rutgers has been, and the difference really in this Rutgers team versus some other ones that have been good defensively is this group actually does ball Hawk. I mean, they're rated extremely highly in terms of steel percentage. Cam Spencer alone is getting about two and a half steals a game. So your guards have to be conscious of that. They're going to need to be strong with the ball and they're going to need to be locked in from the get-go. 
the, the biggest problem I see here is if Michigan State is committing live ball turnovers, which steals are by definition, that could lead to Rutgers getting easy scoring opportunities. And this is a team that struggles enough offensively. You don't want them. I mean, if Rutgers can get to, you know, 14, 16, 18 points off turnovers, that's a problem. Because if you can limit that, keep it in single digits, at least in the live ball stuff, they're going to struggle some. It's unlikely that Rutgers is going to play a super smooth offensive game for 40 minutes. So you want to maximize the amount of time they are staring at a half court set, you know, and that's where I think the turnovers potentially could become big because again, Rutgers MO is to actually generate a lot of those themselves with their defense. And speaking of not allowing people to have second opportunities, defensive rebounding, Michigan State, I don't know, are they elite? I mean, what did, what level do you have to be on to be considered an elite rebounding team defensively? Well, they would they would qualify. I would think, I think top twenty, top right? 15. Top fifteen, yeah. And they definitely they yeah. still are for sure after last game, I would think too, with yeah. Purdue. So can you do it again? And you know, a team that has troubles shooting, a trouble scoring, can you just limit them to one attempt? Because I think they're gonna be obviously a difficult team to score against. So you gotta you you can't get them extra opportunities. Well, look, at coming off, I mean, no offense to Omarui, who I've said, I think is a great player. But when you're coming off battling Zach Eady for 40 minutes, and he played almost all of those 40 minutes, anything's going to feel like a relief. It's going to feel like they're at least back to playing someone who's part of the human race. Right? Right. So, but that said, Michigan State's got to be locked in once again. You know, the Big Ten typically, and this year is no exception, there's some variants. There's certain programs that historically, you know, Wisconsin would be one of them. Um, Michigan often under Beeline and more recently have gone back to that under Howard. You know, Northwestern's never been a big offensive rebounding team. There's some programs that don't emphasize it, but there are always several who are right near the top nationally, at least in recent years. Purdue is one of those. Illinois has tended to be one of those. Michigan State historically, although not this year. Um, and then Rutgers under Peichel, it's part of their, part of their MO, um, and part of their culture. It had slipped the last couple of years a bit from where it was earlier in his tenure, but they're back in, I think they're in the top 40, uh, nationally right now. So they're going to pose a challenge when a team shoots as poorly as Rutgers does. One thing you cannot do as a defense is keep giving them additional chances to score. Right. So if MSU can do the job they've been doing in terms of ending possessions with one shot, that's going to help a lot. All right. Well, the game is Thursday evening at 630. Michigan State is favored by one point per Ken, Ken Palm. And I don't know anything else to add to the game. I, I guess the one question I have with this is we talked about a little bit after the Purdue game and Pierre Brooks and, Without Malik Hall, there there are lots of men and minutes you're starting to log with people, especially someone like Joey Hauser. There's not a whole lot of relief on the bench for Hauser. I mean, I guess you could, outside of uh, outside of Brooks. I mean, I guess Whitens can play the four, or do you bring Cooper? I, I mean, you need more out of this guy. Now maybe you can hide him a little bit more against Rutgers because they're not going to be, uh, you know, scoring as much, and so maybe he doesn't hurt you as much defensively. But I, I feel like you've got to get more out of Brooks these next. 
five, six games, whatever it is that Malik Hall's out? Well, I think it's at least as much as it's important for MSU. I think it's important for Pierre Brooks's career at Michigan State. For sure. Because it, it, it really starts to feel like either you stake a claim now or the opportunity just may not be there. You know, I mean, it, it really does start to look that way. When you think about what they've got coming back, um, you think about what they're bringing in, and then you also think about what they could add or return yet from this team. If, you know, if say Malik call decides to come back, which, you know, I'm not expecting, but I'm also not ruling out because it is possible. Um, where is there a role Yeah, for Pierre? You know, it's kind of, it's kind of hard to see it. So it's big for him. Um, you know, I, I, I would, I hear you on the idea that if you play him some minutes at the four in a game like this, maybe you get away with it, but their two guys, Hyatt and, and Mog can score, right? So if you're playing a substandard defender against them, can it make those guys even better offensively and they really do damage? Yeah, that's possible. Um, I, I, I guess the one thing I would say is neither one of them presents the kind of, of um, difficult offensive challenge that he might have had in some other recent games. Uh, the shame of it is that, you know, he shows it's, it's not one way all the time. Like I thought in limited minutes, I thought he did a pretty credible job guarding jet Howard. Yeah, no, he was pretty good. Game. Yeah. And then he's come back and in two straight when he's gotten a chance, you know, he hasn't he had, particularly the Purdue game. They were very, <laughs> I was going to tell you, cause I, this is something I heard. I mean, the, the two things that the coaching staff was most upset about after that game. And, you know, take this for what it's worth, but I, I put it, I put stock in it. Were the officiating, I'm talking about the Purdue game. Yeah. Were the officiating and the way Pierre Brooks played defensively. So I hope for his sake, he's had a, you know, he'll have a couple good days of practice and that he gets locked into the scout and starts figuring some things out. Um, because I do think Michigan state now has other options. I, I think if Pierre Brooks doesn't start showing a better level of consistency, I would not actually be surprised to see Carson Cooper get turns at the four, right? Because he's proving, you know, every game lately, he, he continues to show, I mean, nobody's kidding themselves. Carson Cooper is not going to be a guy you can roll with for 20, 25 minutes and think you're going to win. But he is showing his physical tools, which are serious. They're there, um, especially defensively. And I think he's showing that he's learning and progressing in terms of consistency. You know, not having one good hedge in a pick and roll followed by a blown one. You know, like he's doing it repeatedly and he's got they are convinced and we have seen them try it and i think we'll see them try it more if it comes down to it he's got the footwork he's got the speed the athletic ability 
to give them some minutes at the four. And I don't think you want him going against premium fours, but Rutgers doesn't have premium fours. So could Michigan State decide, hey, we're going to roll with Carson for three minutes and 30 seconds? Yeah. At the four spot. Yeah. They could. Well, it'd be nice to see Joey get a little bit of rest because you're going to wear him down pretty quickly, especially with this, you know, all these games you're playing and very little limited rest. Obviously with Cooper, you have less offense you get with Brooks. Um, Of course, I say that and Brooks, you know, missed all the shots, but he has been pretty decent shooter most of the season. That is the negative to the Carson Cooper effect is that you are then really bogging down and limiting your offense. So it's not like that's a solution that's going to work for, Hey, we got to get Joey 10 minutes of rest. You can't, you can't do that for that long, unless you're in a game. That's a total rock fight, which this might be actually this one could easily turn into a rock fight. Um, So maybe this is one you can get away with it, but I'm saying over the course of a season, you know, if you have Carson out there with either Jackson Kohler or Mati Sissoko, it really doesn't matter which, um, in a twin towers, look, your spacing is gone. Shit. <laughs> I mean, it's just it, offensively, it's going to be tough. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I think we'll wrap it up there again. I encourage you if listening to the show, check out nudge printing at nudgeprinting.com. Enter in the coupon code final four to get 20% off your order. And until next time, the final four is on the schedule. Go green. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.